Numbers 22. Numbers 22 is what we'll be in um, this evening. Uh, Numbers 22, as we continue to make our way through uh, the book of Numbers, um, we're going to be looking um, essentially at an overview of, of this whole account in Numbers 22, Balaam and Balak and uh, Balaam's donkey. Um, but what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read verses uh, 1 to 6, give a, a quick summary of um, what basically takes place down to about um, verse 35, and then we'll pick back up in verse 36 and, and finish reading it there. So we're going to read down to uh, verse 40. So uh, Numbers 22, beginning in, <coughs> excuse me, verse 1. Uh, Moses here is, uh, of course, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, and we read here, um, Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at um, Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many, Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Amal, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. And then what happens is the, the elders of Moab are sent to um, Balaam to try and persuade him to come and curse the people of Israel. And um, initially he uh, refuses. He says he can't uh, do that. Um, and the Lord tells him that he can't do that as well. And, um, and, then, and then Balak sends another group, right? An even more prestigious uh, group of, of princes to try and persuade him uh, yet again. And uh, Balaam is not satisfied with the first word that he receives from the Lord. So he, he asks again if he can uh, curse the people of Israel. Um, this time the Lord says, no, he cannot curse, but he can go with uh, the people um, uh, back to Moab. And then we have this, um, this interesting little account of, of Balaam riding on his donkey to go to um, the nation of Moab and to be with uh, King Balak and, and ultimately to, to see um, if he might be able to, to curse Israel, um, if there's enough manipulation that he can, he can do. But on the way to uh, Moab, of course, he's riding on the donkey and there's um, three occasions where the angel of the Lord is standing before the donkey to uh, block Balaam. And then, of course, the angel of, of the, uh, excuse me, the, the donkey then rebukes uh, Balaam for his sin. Balaam confesses his sin. And then we pick up in verse 
uh, 36. And again, we'll go over some of the more of these details um, when we go back through this. But we pick up in verse 36, and it says, Now when Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab on the border formed by the Arnon at the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, Did I not send to you to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. Then Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriath-Huzoth, and Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep, and sent for Balaam and for the princes who were with him. And we'll, we'll stop there and, and pick up again in that last verse in our, our next meeting. So, we, uh, we of course tonight come to this uh, very well-known uh, story, that of Balaam and Balak and Balaam's donkey. And uh, this is a story that leads uh, into, ultimately into another account of Israel's rebellion. Uh, similar to what we've seen before, so that um, you have basically throughout the book of Numbers this um, pattern um, where the Lord is determining to do good to Israel, and uh, then in response, uh, Israel isn't grateful for the Lord's um, provisions and blessings, but is rather rebellious, and then they're judged for it. Um, again, this is, this is a pattern that you see throughout the book of Numbers, and so you could think, um, for example, about the fact that at the beginning of the book of Numbers, um, the book shows that uh, it, it shows us God's goodness to Israel in the fact that He gives to them uh, the tabernacle, right? Um, uh, in the midst of which He will dwell uh, with His people and He will lead them uh, throughout the wilderness. And, and we read about them setting out from Sinai um, to ultimately um, to, to enter into uh, the promised land. And then immediately we come into chapters 11 and 12 and we find the people complaining against God, complaining against Moses, and, and, and even Miriam and Aaron rebelling against uh, Moses. And then a little bit further on, you come to chapter 15, and when you come there, you have the providing of additional rituals and promises that the Lord would bring the people of Israel into the promised land. And then this is immediately followed by uh, Korah's rebellion and the destruction of the people who were with him. And then, of course, here you have God giving the kings of the Amorites and Bashan into Israel's hands at the end of chapter 21 with his determination to bless Israel, even though you have the, a king, right, King Balak, who is determined to curse Israel. God is determined to bless Israel. And then once we move through um, this particular cycle of events, this will then be followed by Israel again rebelling and worshiping Baal in Numbers 25, right? So it's this constant cycle of the Lord doing good to the people of Israel, keeping His Word, keeping His promises, and then the people of Israel just immediately forget the things that He's done for them and they revolt and repay the Lord's kindness with 
rebellion. But here in chapter 22, we see the Lord's kindness being displayed as He protects the people of Israel from the schemes of this Moabite king, Balak, who sought to curse the people of Israel so that he could ultimately defeat them in battle. And there's a lot going on in this account. And there's um, essentially three different cycles of attempted cursing that was um, turned into blessing, which we'll um, look at in subsequent weeks as they are in these um, later chapters, like 23 and following. And then specifically, as we move um, through this chapter, I want to just highlight for us some important points, um, both about the narrative itself, um, as well as um, I want to make a few um, apologetic and application points. Um, So again, we'll kind of do an overview of the story, and I'll I'll highlight some things that I think are worth um, bringing out uh, tonight. Um, So, in verses uh, 1 to 6, if you look with me uh, again here in in Numbers 22, verses 1 to 6, we're told about the situation that gives rise to this Balaam cycle of of, um, blessings instead of curses. Um, Israel, at this point in their history, is encamped um, in the plains of Moab. And the king of Moab, whose name we're told is is Balak, as well as the whole nation of the people of Moab, um, they're terrified, right? They see this, um, what they call this Israelite horde, right? This massive amount of people. And they've heard of the the destruction, the defeat of these um, great kings of uh, Sihon and and Og that uh, Israel had, had defeated in battle, right? This massive amount of people, this, these battles they've been winning. And, 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 and again, the people of Moab, they're, they're terrified of uh, what could happen. Um, again, and, and, and let me just emphasize this point here, they see, they see the sheer size of Israel. And, and that alone is enough to strike this fear into their hearts. Um, in, in many ways, they are, they are reacting to the sight of Israel in the same way that the spies of Israel who had gone into the land of Canaan when they saw the Canaanites and the size of some of these you know, giant men, they were terrified, uh, even though they had no reason to be because they had the Lord on their side. All right? So there's kind of a a similar reaction going on here with the people of Moab as they see the sheer size of the nation of Israel. They are thrown into a complete panic. Only again, unlike the panic of the Israelites, um, uh, which was unjustified because they had the Lord, these Moabites in many ways are justified in their fear. But I want you to notice what is said in this first section, because I think it bears some significance um, even in how we understand some of the other parts of the book of Numbers in particular, and even some other things that are said elsewhere uh, in the Pentateuch. So if you look with me again at verse 3, I want you to notice what is said there. We read in verse 3 that Moab 
was in great dread of the people, notice, because they were many. The Israelites were many. They had become great in number. So much so that Balak believes he needs the aid of a very well-known diviner, a, a pagan prophet by the name of Balaam. And when he thinks about sending messengers to Balaam, notice what he wants his messengers to tell Balaam. Look with me again at the end of verse 5. We read there, this, this is part of the message of King Balak. Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Now, obviously there is some degree of exaggeration here. Israel is not covering the whole face of the earth, and, and even if you translate this word Eretz as land instead of earth, they're not covering the whole face of Moabite land. The point, though, is that their population is so extensive that it appears, it, it, it's, it's worth stating that they are covering the whole face of the earth. They are a massive size nation. Now, on this point, I want to make just an apologetic observation, an apologetic point, right? When we're talking about apologetics, we're talking about defense of the Bible, defense of Christianity, or, or, or things of, of that nature, right? So I don't want to, again, I'm not like apologizing for anything here, right? This is a defense, okay? Now, if you remember when we first started going through the book of Numbers, one of the things that I pointed out was that there are many, even evangelical scholars, who do not believe that the censuses that we find in the beginning of the book of Numbers and the end of the book of Numbers are to be understood literally. Many of them argue that there is, even within the census, much exaggeration that is going on. They argue that the numbers are inflated. And there are several reasons that are often given in defense of this, but one of them has to do with the fact that the census of Israel, if literal, would mean that the total number of the people of Israel would have been in the millions. You're talking about probably anywhere, estimates are anywhere from one and a half upwards to about three million people. And not only do some scholars believe that this would have been physically impossible, but they also quote other texts that they argue justify a kind of a, a more hyperbolic reading here. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, the Lord says, It was not because you were more numerous than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. And people and, and scholars will point to a text like this and they will say, See, right? Israel had a small population. 
And so they could not have been numbering into the millions of people. But I want you to notice again that it is precisely the numerical size of Israel that is one of the things that is striking terror into the people of Moab and into the heart of the king. They are many, he says, and they cover the whole face of the earth. That's what's terrifying him, is that they are far more numerous than he is or that anyone else is. Moreover, it is also precisely the numerical size of Israel that had previously struck fear into the heart of Pharaoh and all of the Egyptians, leading him to enslave the people of Israel and leading him to at least attempt to kill all of the male children who were being born in Israel. We read, for example, in Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, that the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And then we read in verse 9 of Exodus 1, Pharaoh saying, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. That's not language that you use if the actual population size of Israel is really incredibly small. If they're just few in number compared to all of these other nations, And yet, that's what many argue Israel was at this time. They might have numbered in the tens of thousands, maybe in like the 100 to 200,000 range. And that would have been just about it. It was a rather small nation in comparison to others. And again, this is often based on a text like Deuteronomy 7. But I would suggest that in many cases, Deuteronomy 7 is incorrectly cited to support the notion that Israel was relatively small. And that this is actually a bad interpretation that ends up creating an unnecessary contradiction with all of these other passages that we find in Exodus and in Numbers. The statement in Deuteronomy 7 about Israel's election is not about how numerous they were, or as the text says, how few they were right before they were about to enter into the land of Canaan. He's not talking about their present size as he's addressing them before they march into Canaan. What Moses is referring to is how few they were when God first chose them, which is a reference to the days 
of the patriarchs. That's what he's talking about. It was then that God made promises to them, and it was then, in the days of the patriarchs, that God chose them as a nation. And at that time, they were very literally only a few, to use the language of Deuteronomy 7. They were basically just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the sons and the daughters and and the families that were attached to, to them. That's it. And that's what Deuteronomy 7 is referring to. And if you have any doubts about that, this is also confirmed for us when we look at Psalm 105, which we read from earlier, where the psalmist there is actually recounting God's covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he uses the exact same language that is used in Deuteronomy 7 to refer to the days of the patriarchs, not to the days of Israel when they're about to enter the promised land. So again, in Psalm 105, verses 8 and following, uh, down to about verse 11, the psalmist there says that God remembers His covenant forever that was made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he says in verses 12 to 14, in a section of the psalm, this psalm is recounting the history of Israel, and it's in a section that comes prior to the patriarchs going down into Egypt. Right, So the famine hasn't even come upon the land yet. We haven't even reached the end of Genesis um, 50 yet. And he says in verses 12-14, to 14, in a section dealing with this pre Egyptian exile, he says, when they were few in number, using the same phrase that we find in Deuteronomy 7, when they were of little account and sojourners in it, in the land, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them, he rebuked kings on their account. Right? Again, the psalmist here says that it was then that they were few in number in the days of the patriarchs. And then, as the psalm continues, while they were in Egypt, it was then that they were fruitful and they multiplied and they became stronger than all of their foes. The point then, as I said, and and, and this is again an, an apologetic point, is that Israel in the days of the wilderness wandering were not by any means a small few people of little account. They were great and indeed were more numerous even then the census reports, because you'll remember that the census is not taking into account all of the women and children who were with them, and it's not taking into account all of the Egyptians 
who left Egypt with them, they have become incredibly numerous at this point. Right? So that's just a point I, I think it's worth stating, especially as we, we think through, like how are we to understand the, the, the nature of the people of Israel at this time? And again, how are we to read these, these different um, censuses in the book? And so Balak sees this great, numerous people, and he is terrified. And so what does he do? Well, he wants to hire this, this famous, this well-known pagan prophet from Mesopotamia to curse the people of Israel. And so in verse 7, he sends an envoy of important elders from Moab to go to Baal and to hire him to curse Israel. And they bring with them, <clears throat> we're told, fees for divination. Now, Baal, um, excuse me, Balaam was no legitimate prophet. And by that, I mean that he was not a prophet of the Lord, not a prophet of Yahweh, not in any way a follower of the Lord. He was a diviner. He was a manipulator of people and a manipulator of gods or demons. One of the things that's important to know, I think, about ancient paganism, and in many ways, it's still the exact same in modern paganism. Especially like, you know, I was sharing even last week at our members meeting about the kinds of things that you see in Malawi that, that, that's involved with, with witchcraft. I mean, this is, this is basically the same kind of thing that's going on in, in ancient paganism. But one of the things that's important to understand is that everything is built on manipulation. What you can get. How you can, how you can manipulate people and circumstances to get the things that you want. Many people believed that there were spirits or that there were different gods who manipulated and controlled different aspects of a person's life. So maybe you had some gods who, who had control over fertility, whether that's you know, your, your fertility, on your, your being able to have children, whether that was the fertility, the fruitfulness of the land. You had gods who were over fertility. You had gods who were over the rains and the storms. You had gods who were uh, over the sun and the moon. You had gods of war and many others. And if you wanted things to go well for you in your life, you needed to please these gods. And you did so by manipulating them. By giving them what they wanted or what you thought they needed so that you can then get what you want and what you need. And this is what Balaam specialized in. He was the guy that everybody goes to who knows about all the different gods and who could tell you what each god needed and who could then prescribe for you rituals to perform and prescribe the offerings that need to be given that would please the gods and allow you to then get what you wanted. 
And so when Balak sends elders to Balaam with the fees for divination, he's paying the price for Balaam's work, for Balaam's counsel, for Balaam's ability to consult with the gods, to consult basically with the demons and figure out what they need in order to give Moab favorable circumstances. Balak wants Balaam to manipulate and influence the gods to curse Israel and bless Moab so that if and when Israel and Moab fight, Balak will be able to win the war. Excuse me. Now, when the elders come to Balaam, he tells them to stay overnight and then he's going to consult with the Lord. He's going to consult with Yahweh and he's going to tell them what Yahweh wants them to do. Now, sometimes I think people can get tripped up by this and they think, you know, well, Balaam knows the Lord, right? He's, he's, he's having conversations with the Lord. He must be a follower of Yahweh and a true prophet, right? But again, you have to remember how ancient paganism works. To Balaam, Yahweh is just another God among many. He knows about Yahweh. He's heard about Yahweh because everyone at this point has heard about Yahweh. If they had not known about Yahweh 40 or 50 or 60 years prior, once the people of Israel were able to gain their freedom from Egypt and were able to defeat many of these kings, word spread fast. They knew the God of the people of Israel. Their God is Yahweh. (coughs) Excuse me. So Balaam knows Yahweh, and he knows Him as just a God among many other gods. <clears throat> My throat, can you give me the, that water over there? Sorry, I'm getting a little tickle. <coughs> excuse me. Um, but then we read, uh, excuse me, thank you. Let me, uh, whew, let me just pause here. <coughs> you know, that cough from about three weeks ago is still lingering. <laughs> Excuse me. But then we read that God comes to Balaam and um, and he's inquiring about things that are going on. Eliana, give me the um, water bottle over there. He's inquiring about all the things that are going on and what Balak wants him to do. And God tells Balaam in verse 12 what he was supposed to do. So if you look with me there, verse 12, God says to Balaam, you shall not go with them, right? Don't go with the elders of Moab. Don't go back with them. You're not going to curse or anything like that. He tells them, you shall not curse the people for they are blessed. And then Balaam relays this message to the Moabite elders. Now, at, at this point, if we just stop here, this should have been the end of it. This should have been where the story ends. And any other request that Moab had for Balaam with respect to Israel and the Lord should have come to an end right there. Because the Lord gave His word. This is what you're supposed to do, Balaam. Don't go 
with the elders, don't go to Moab, and you're not going to curse the people of Israel because they are blessed. But, remember, Balaam is a manipulator. And he's money hungry. He likes gain. And he thinks that the Lord, that Yahweh, is just like every other god. He's just like Baal. He's just like Chemosh. He's just like all of the well-known pagan deities. And he can be manipulated for a price. So then, we're told, (coughs) excuse me, that King Balak ups the ante. He raises the stakes. Now, my goodness, I'm dying up here. (laughs) We're having a struggle tonight. Now, he's going to send his princes. He's going to send people who are going to be more honorable and, and, and can convince Balaam that more honor can be given to him if he curses Israel. <clears throat> and Balaam should have turned immediately away from them when they came the second time. But in the story, what we find is that that's not what he does. He tells them when the princes come that he still can't curse the people of Israel. But He's going to go back to the Lord. And he's going to see if there's any change in the Lord's mind at this point. He tells them to stay again overnight and he'll consult Yahweh again. And this is where we see his manipulating, his manipulative work start to really come through. He's thinking that maybe this time the Lord's going to give him a different answer. <coughs> Excuse me. And he wants a different answer. Right? That, that, that's ultimately what this boils down to. He wants something different from what he's receiving right now because he is a man who's full of greed. So now, when he consults the Lord, again, the Lord tells him. He says, okay, <coughs> you can go with the men but you still can't curse them. And Balaam is told that he must say only what the Lord gives him to say. Now, as the narrative plays out, we're going to quickly see that the only reason that the Lord sends Balaam to Balak is to bless Israel in front of him. Now the the, the sending of Balaam is going to make it crystal clear to everyone involved that the Lord is blessing Israel. It's not because he's just changed his mind all of a sudden and Balaam has prevailed on him. His first word that he gave to Balaam to stay, to not go with the Moabites, should have been sufficient. Again, that should have been the end of this whole account. But Balaam is full of greed. And so now the Lord is going to use this greedy, wicked, and as we'll see, essentially dumb prophet to bless his people. 
And this is really where the point of verses 22 to 35 comes through. Now, of course, in this passage, we're told about Balaam's journey to Moab. He's riding on his donkey with some of his servants with him, and the Lord sends an angel to oppose him three times. Balaam, throughout this, is kept from seeing the angel, right? He's made, he's made blind here. But basically what happens is that on three occasions, he's riding on his donkey, he's on a narrow road, and the angel stands in the way of the donkey. The donkey then sees the angel and moves out of the way in, 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 in different circumstances, causing Balaam on one occasion to ride off into a field somewhere, and on another occasion to scrape his foot, and, and then on another time just to come to a complete stop. <clears throat> Balaam's donkey, in other words, is frustrating him. He grows angry with his donkey, and then he strikes the donkey. And it's at that point that the Lord, <coughs> excuse me, opens the mouth of the donkey and he causes the donkey to speak to Balaam. And when the donkey speaks, right, he, he reasons with Balaam and he's explaining to him that an angel had been standing in their way and that it was because of the actions of Balaam's donkey that Balaam isn't dead right now. The donkey's actually looking out for Balaam because had he continued to be walking in a straight line, the angel of the Lord would have killed him. And when the donkey explains this, the angel is then revealed to Balaam, right? His eyes are opened and he falls down in fear and he confesses his sin. Now, again, there's a lot that's going on here that we could unpack, but probably most importantly, in the narrative, the point that is being made is not only that the Lord can use a speechless donkey to speak, but that in the same way that dumb donkey can speak the word of the Lord, the Lord is now going to make this dumb prophet speak the words of the Lord in favor of the people of Israel. He's going to put his words into the mouth of this pagan prophet and this pagan prophet who wanted nothing more in his own heart than to curse the people of Israel is going to do nothing more than bless the people of Israel. Uh, uh, again, this man, Balaam, wanted gain. He wanted prosperity from this. He was a greedy man who would do anything and manipulate anyone to gain wealth. And the Lord uses a speechless donkey to rebuke him and to make the point that no words are going to be spoken in the name of Yahweh unless Yahweh himself puts them into the mouth of the speaker. Whether that be an animal, like a donkey, or a pagan prophet, like Balaam. <clears throat> There's also a lesson here, I think, about the reality 
and danger of false teachers who are so consumed by greed that they will do and say anything for gain. I do think that sometimes it is, it's very hard, even for, for Christians who understand and believe in the doctrine of total depravity, it can be very hard for people to believe that others could just purposefully lie and lie and lie, even in the name of God, for shameful gain and for no other reason. Right? It's often as if like there has to be some other explanation. Right? Maybe they're deceived. Maybe they don't have a, 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 you know, a good understanding of the Bible. Right? Maybe it's just this, this innocent, that, that's all they've ever known. <laughs> there can't be, surely there can't be someone who is <clears throat> intentionally manipulating and lying, even using the name of God in order to fill their pockets with money and gain. <clears throat> we like to look oftentimes and see the best of intentions. But this is often not the case. <clears throat> the human heart can, in fact, descend into such darkness that it seems utterly incomprehensible. It seems like it is complete madness. And it is. Oftentimes, it is total madness. There is no rational explanation. And this is exactly what the Apostle Peter warns us about when he talks to the church about the reality of false teachers. You'll remember in 2 Peter that when Peter warns about false teachers, you know, he's, he's not saying things like, <clears throat> they're just innocently making mistakes. Right? Uh, they, they just don't have you know, the best knowledge of the Bible and maybe we should just kind of help them out in these areas. No, no, no. He's not saying anything like that. He's pointing to Balaam and he's saying they're just like him. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, he says there, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Right? Notice that. They love gain. That's what's on their heart. That's what their desires are consumed with. But Balaam, he says, was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless Donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Right? <clears throat> it's madness. Unexplainable insanity. The human mind descending into such irrational behavior because the corrupt heart so longs for gain, that it will do anything in order to achieve those ends. There is no rational explanation for it. When people love sin and they are determined to pursue it at whatever cost, 
they become dumber than donkeys. The donkeys are wiser than the foolish sinner. The donkey in the case of Balaam is the one who has to rebuke the prophet's madness. And if someone does not repent in that state, it will be the donkeys that rise up against them in judgment. And this is the case not only when it comes to greed. This is any sin. You know, we've we've talked about this before. There's never a rational explanation for sin. Sin is always stupid. (laughs) It's foolishness, right? And it it turns us, right? We we even read this morning. It turns us into these, these idols that we worship. Idols are deaf, dumb, blind, speechless. And those who worship them, those who pursue them, become just like them. Deaf, dumb, blind, and speechless. So there's a warning here, of course, about the dangers of false prophets and how they operate and the manipulation that they often engage in. And as we continue in these chapters, we're going to, of course, look more at the story of Balaam and Balak. But again, the point that we are to understand here is that when God determines to bless His people, there is no person, there is no power, there is no authority that can stop that. That You can even take the most well-known false prophet of the day, which was Balaam. I mean, there's, there's even stories about him that, that we've, we've found, you know, like 500 or so years later. Balaam was a well-known Mesopotamian prophet. You can take the most famous Mesopotamian prophet there was, and nothing is going to stop the Lord's plans when he determines to bless his people. This was the case for the people of Israel as his covenant people then, and it is also and will forever be the case for his covenant people now. There is nothing, there is nothing at all. We can think about Romans 8. There is nothing that can separate his people, his covenant blood-bought people from the love of Christ. You, You can't even take whatever charge that Satan could launch at us as sinners. All of it has been been acquitted, right? No charge can be brought against God's elect because it is God who justifies His people. When God determines to bless, He will bless and His plans will succeed. So we're going to close there. Let me me, uh, close with uh, a word of prayer and then we'll we'll sing this this Gloria Patri and, uh, and also the doxology, so that we can sing something a little bit more familiar as well. So let me, uh, let me close this with a word of prayer. Well, Father, again, we thank you for uh, this evening, and we thank you that you are indeed a God who is just and faithful and faithful to bless your people. And that in the same way that we see you guarding and protecting your people, Israel, when there were those who desired to conquer them and to curse them, you 
you remain faithful to your covenant promises to them in the same way you will continue to guard and protect your covenant people now. We thank you that we have these promises uh, in and through Christ, that we have been completely forgiven of our sins, and that the curse that was against us was laid upon him so that now that we have trusted in him, we will be forever blessed. So we thank you, Lord, for your works. We pray all this in Jesus' name.